All right. So welcome to the second episode of Brightscape's podcast. Today, we have Eric Weiss, our founder and CEO of Brightscape, and Michael Bernstein. He's our newest intern to the firm. He's now um, an intern from University of Miami. So before I begin, Eric, can you kind of give an introduction of yourself, please? Sure. Um, First off, uh, good afternoon, everyone, anyone who's going to was listening. Uh, I'm talking to today from um, <clears throat> sunny Fort Collins, Colorado, where uh, it was hailing last night. Um, the hail lasted for about half an hour. Uh, it was pretty amazing. And um, the hiking here is great. The biking here is great. And um, look forward to talking to you this afternoon about alternative investing. Michael. Hello, everyone. My name is Michael Bernstein. I'm speaking today from the Miami office. Um, I'm originally from Connecticut. I'm currently going into my junior year at the University of Miami, studying management and finance. And I am aspiring to one day be a certified financial planner. Awesome. All right. As I mentioned before, Michael's going to ask us some questions regarding some alternative investments. These are um, things we're adding to our current clients' portfolios. Um, we feel it's a good addition uh, for multiple reasons, and hopefully we can explain why. So, Michael, go ahead. All right, so more generally speaking, Scott, can you guys explain what exactly are alternatives? Yeah, let me just uh, start by saying al- alternative investments are simply non-traditional stocks and bonds that most people have in their portfolio. Alternative investments generally are beneficial because they zig when traditional investments zag. Can you give an every person example of what this might look like? Sure. Um, An alternative investment that we're using today uh, for clients involves Uh, Consumer loans. Consumer loans are historically been around for hundreds of years, but up until a couple years ago had not been accessible by individuals in any um, easy way. Consumer loans uh, do similar things that bonds do, but they do it better. Consumer loans also are not affected by the same things that affect the stock market. So consumer loans, there's an example of an alternative investment. Um, are alternative investments, is this something, is this something that is more recent or is this something that has existed throughout the course of, uh, the course of investing? So I'll take I mean, this I, one. Yeah, go ahead. So, You know, I got this question the other day. Alternative investments is just a general umbrella for a lot of um, alternative non-financial instruments or non-security type things. Um, So they've been around for hundreds of years. Specifically, um, another, in addition to consumer loans, we're looking at reinsurance. Well, that's one of the oldest businesses um, that's been around for hundreds of years. And traditionally, these have been offered only to wealthy investors or institutions that have 
quite a bit of capital. We're talking multiple millions to hundreds of millions to billions. Um, just recently, probably within the last five years to two, I, I'd say a lot of the funds that we're looking at are only two years old. Um, they've opened this up to more of your average um, investor. Why should a potential investor be interested in adopting an alternative, an alternative investment strategy? Because going forward, um, they'll earn more money in their portfolio if they do it. Because the alternative investments will protect their portfolio against any decline in the stock market and or bond market. And uh, anytime you limit the downside of a portfolio, you end up with more money. Do you see this becoming? Did you see this becoming something that's more popular in the upcoming years, or is it something that will continue to remain under the radar, so to speak? That's a good question. Um, and Scott, I'll let you chime in after I'm done here. But the conversations that we've had with clients kind of um, are across the board. Some clients get it immediately. More often than not, clients don't understand it. And anything that's unfamiliar is hard to do. So I would say in the immediate future, it's going to remain under the radar simply because most people are not talking about it. And number two, those people who are talking about it, um, it's not easily explainable to the layman. Yeah, I mean, just to chime in, you know, certain people understand um, different alternatives. Um, I think um, as people become more aware of them, you will see more people gravitating towards them, um, especially as mutual funds start you know, as they start appearing on CNBC and people see it in everyday media so they can understand um, it a little bit more. They are very attractive from a professional investor standpoint. Therefore, I would see in the future, some of the alternatives will be picked up by the average person. Let me just also add that, um, the layman or the average investor has never seen these things before. And like I said, anything that breeds unfamiliarity creates cognitive dissonance. And it's very hard for people to get around the cognitive dissonance and do something differently than what they've done in the past. Um, in regards to the actual investing itself, how do you invest in alternatives? So oh, as a, Go ahead, Eric. Well, I'll just mention, and then you can come in. Um, over the past three years, I think the SEC approved a new type of investment fund called an interval fund. <laughs> interval in the sense that um, purchases and sales are allowed at different intervals during the year, not on a daily basis. An interval fund, an interval fund is needed for these types of investments because of the nature of the business that being invested in whether it's a consumer loan or whether it's as it's an insurance related security. So Eric, we might want to talk a little bit more about, you know, why, why it needs an interval fund. Like specifically we could give specific examples on like the insurance contracts, right? Like there's four times a year that you can purchase these reinsurance actually contracts just due to the cyclical 
business that they're in, right? So they need to have an understanding of exactly how much money and how many of these contracts they, they can purchase. Um, and, and when they purchase these, these are usually a year long contract that it's very difficult for the fund company to, um, purchase if they don't know how much money they're going to have tomorrow. Well, that's right. Um, as you said, insurance contracts are annual contracts. And when the risk is underwritten, they have to know how much capital is there that they can take on. Therefore, they can't have investors uh, asking for their money back uh, two weeks after they've underwritten uh, $50 million of hurricane insurance for the state of Florida. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that's, um, you know, it's definitely different. Um, going back to the average investor, I think that's something that's very difficult for some people to understand that, you know, when they do put their money in, um, they're not going to be able to get it out tomorrow. Um, that being said, Eric, don't most hedge funds, I mean, what's, what's the yeah, process on yeah. investing in a hedge fund? That's a very good point. I was just reading about in the Financial Times yesterday, a new hedge fund being launched for investment in um, distressed bonds when the market does uh, decline. And this fund is, is, is uh, locking up the investors for five years, meaning you can't touch your money for five years in addition to the fees that they're levying, which is, as people may know, a hedge fund fee has a basic management fee. Maybe that's 2%. And then they have, um, you know, 20% of the profits over some threshold and you can't touch your money for five years. So a five-year lockup is typical for a hedge fund. An interval fund is somewhat similar, but a lot less draconian than a hedge fund. And by the way, it's interesting you mentioned that because hedge funds, what they do is they make these same types of investments, whether it's in consumer loans, whether it's in um, insurance related securities that alternatives accomplish through a much less onerous structure of an interval fund. Well, well, and also, I mean, who we know, but I mean, who's the average investor in a hedge fund? What kind of net worth do they have? I mean, they have to be, um, you know, an accredited investor, which in our case, by definition, make what, 250000 a year or worth more than a million bucks anyway, right? Correct. Correct. So as, um, you know, people have written, what what is happening now is the democratization of these types of investments, um, as, you, as you alluded to earlier, um, making them available to the retail investor where heretofore they were never available to the retail investor. Yeah. And again, these funds aren't available at your standard, standard mutual fund store, basically a TD Ameritrade that <clears throat> you can buy them through there, but the average retail investor can't go walk into a TD Ameritrade or Fidelity house and get these funds. Correct. That's correct. Um, you know, the, the managers of these funds impose minimums, uh, usually of a million dollars or $10 million per um, institution that's buying the fund. So unless you've got a million dollars to pop into one of these funds, uh, you cannot buy them. You, you, you will not have access to them. So where do they fit? Like if, if, you know, and I'm asking um, Eric, I'm asking you these questions, just coming from an academic standpoint, where do they fit in regards to a portfolio? 
Like what percentage allocation would you do? Yeah, good question. Um, once again, that depends on the individual investor. I think the allocation could be anywhere from, you know, five to 15 or 20% of a portfolio, depending upon the individual risk profile and the, uh, disposition towards accepting risk that that client has. And I, and I think from there, I think the, the other question that is out there is, well, what are the alternatives that we're looking at specifically? Yeah, as we mentioned, uh, consumer loans is one of them. Um, Insurance-related securities, which really is just stepping into the, insures, into the shoes of an insurer or reinsurer and taking on the risks, the underwriting risks that they're bear, bearing. And the third one is a little more esoteric. That's called the variance risk premium. And just in simple terms, if you can put it in simple terms, it's um, accepting risk for people that want to lay off risk and therefore people uh, pay a premium for that. So for instance, the variance risk premium captures the premium earned by uh, someone who sells a put option to someone who buys a put option because they want to protect their portfolio against a decline. And we feel this is a good time period due to the market being, um, I guess now volatility is coming back into the market is the, the what everybody says. And so therefore the alternatives kind of add to that diversification now that we can invest in something like this now that it is open, correct? Yeah, I mean, whether it's the stock market that is at, you know, very high levels of prices, so it's very expensive, <clears throat> or a bond market that has seen over the past um, 30 years or so a decline, a secular decline in interest rates that, you know, we may be at the point where that's about to turn. So you could have a, obviously a correction or a decline in the stock market of some magnitude given where we are in the cycle and how how expensive things are. And secondly, the bond market for the first time in 30 years may be facing a, a sustained and prolonged increase in interest rates. So Michael, I have a question for you. Have we explained these alternatives to you? I think definitely, uh, as opposed to the beginning of the podcast, I have a better understanding of what alternatives are, why it's um, important for a potential investor to incorporate them, incorporate alternatives into their portfolio. So, Eric, do you have anything to add? Um, only that, you know, I, I just want to reiterate that, you know, anything that's unfamiliar is not necessarily bad. And to keep doing the same thing that you've done in the past is not a recipe for success, but just the opposite. As, as one of the managers or founders of these funds said, would you rather uh, succeed uncomfortably or fail comfortably? Yeah, I mean, you know, the only the only kicker to that is be cautious um, when people mention alternatives because there there can be some um, issues in regards to that. There's a lot of people that can sell alternatives under an umbrella or a package that is probably not a good fit. 
Um, therefore, it's important to understand exactly what you are getting into before you get into it. Correct. All right. Well, I think that completes our alternative. This, <clears throat> we feel like this will be a part one of a three-part series um, just due to the fact of the nature of um, these style of investments. Um, so we'll look forward to discussing um, next week. Thanks. You know, I really enjoyed that, and I hope it provides some uh, explanation of these to anyone who might listen to our podcast. And Mike, Michael, thanks for being a good intern and host. Thanks, Michael. Hey, there. <laughs>